from Cambridge 105 Radio. This is The Business of Cambridge with Sue Keogh. Series 2, Episode 10, Learning, is brought to you by our friends at Third Light, digital asset management for creative people. Hello and welcome to The Business of Cambridge. In this final episode of Series 2, we'll hear from our resident expert on branding, who's got some useful advice on spreading your message effectively. But our main focus is learning and how we address the digital divide in education, which has grown ever wider during the recent disruption to nurseries, schools and colleges. Joining me are Philip Colligan, Chief Executive of the Raspberry Pi Foundation, a true Cambridge success story, a low-cost computer small enough to fit in the palm of your hand, which was designed to get children and people of all ages into programming. And Rob Percival, founder of Startup Blue Tick, which is a platform to help 11 to 16-year-olds all over the world learn maths in a whole new way. Rob, just give me a quick snapshot of Blue Tick. It says on your website it's made by teachers and powered by AI, but what does it actually do? So Blue Tick was built in conjunction with the Perth School here in Cambridge, and we've worked with teachers from day one in the development of the product. I was a teacher for 10 years, and the thing that I missed in online platforms at the time was the ability to give students help and support within the platform while they were working on their on their maths. So I love my students to work line by line through problems, showing all of their working. Some of them don't like to do that, but it's a very good thing mathematically. And so I wanted to have an app that allowed them to do that and then gave them helpful support while they made mistakes, while they were working through those problems. And that's essentially what Bluetick does. And Philip, for people who aren't so familiar with Raspberry Pi or the unusual name, can you give us a quick overview of the product? Yes, well, Raspberry Pi is actually, we're an educational charity based here in Cambridge, and uh, we're best known for the product, the Raspberry Pi computer, which, as you said, is a low-cost, general-purpose computer, originally invented for education, particularly to help young people learn how to create with technology, but now used in industry and education and in an enormous range of settings. Uh, I think we've recently passed 38 million Raspberry Pis sold. And the foundation uses the profits from the sale of Raspberry Pi computers, along with some other money that we get from philanthropists and uh, and other sources, to invest in education more broadly. And so we're engaged in teacher training and running computing clubs for kids and helping young people learn online. So the product, the Raspberry Pi computer, is part of the range of things that we do all around helping young people learn. The raspberry in the title came from the sort of noise that you make when you blow a raspberry, which reflects the sort of irreverent nature of the company and the product and our ethos. And Pi is actually not mathematical Pi, it's Python. It stands for it's a Raspberry Pi as in Python, which is a great first programming language for young people to engage with. And I'll ask you shortly about the ways in which you've helped young people keep on learning throughout the pandemic. But what's it been like behind the scenes? You're a sizable organisation with 130 or more employees. Did you all adapt to remote working quite easily? Yes. And, you know, I think what we've what I've been saying and realising is that it's affected everybody, uh, but in different ways at different times. Um, so we moved very quickly to remote working and we have um, at least part of our staff were doing that anyway. But what we've seen is people having different struggles. So lots of parents having to cope with homeschooling and the, the challenges of keeping young ones entertained. And then also lots of colleagues who live alone 
sometimes in apartments and flats in cities, who really found it tough when restrictions meant that they couldn't get outside, couldn't you know get out very often during the day, and and maybe they don't have gardens and so on. So it's been really hard. And and one of the things that we've been focused on, as well as helping people work effectively from home, has been investing in their well-being and trying to do lots of things to get people to reflect on how they're feeling and get exercise when they can and make sure they're taking breaks. And, you know, it's pretty exhausting spending all day on Zoom or Teams or or whatever software you might be using. Rob, it's so cheering to live in a world where learning has become so interactive and fun. What are the different ways in which you help people learn through your platform? And how have you refined the approach over time? Keeping things fun is is pretty critical to um, when students are learning, especially, but but adults as well. Um, we've tried to make our interface as human as possible. So obviously, the special feature of Bluetick is the intelligent feedback that students get as they're working through their maths problems, and that feedback comes from a real human avatar in the corner of their screen. And the the students can actually choose from one of three different avatars when they start using Bluetick, and they can update their their choice later on. And um, we have one app who's very positive and friendly and very supportive and is always saying, well done, carry on, that's great. Um, and we have another avatar, Mr. Stevens, who's who's rather more sarcastic. And, and if you do well in a test, then he'll say something like, uh, that was great, but I could have done it in half the time. Or if you ask for a hint, he'll say, oh, we didn't have hints in my day and you don't need one now. And we find that, that students have a lot of fun with playing around with those AIs. But the real reason that we've done that, of course, is to to give the student a sense that that AI is a, is a person because it's a very emotional experience learning. And especially when you're being criticised and told that you're wrong quite a lot, as students inevitably are. So trying to make that feedback feel human and fun, as well as allowing the student to choose the personality of their AI teacher, has been something that we've, we've had a lot of feedback on. And when I used to go into classrooms and, and watch kids using Bluetick, particularly for the first time, choosing that avatar was a great source of fun and joy. Um, and particularly with Mr. Stevens, our sar- sarcastic avatar, um, they very much enjoyed his, his feedback um, and his, his way of speaking to them. It all sounds very motivating and positive. And Philip, I love the creative projects that you have that encourage children to learn, like the Astro Pi Challenge, where you can write code that gets sent to the International Space Station. How do you come up with all these ideas? Oh, well, uh, I'm very lucky that I have the most, uh, I get to work with the most amazing creative colleagues. Um, But also, I think Raspberry Pi, more than anything, is a community organisation. So we mobilise and work with tens of thousands of educators and volunteers. And lots of the um, creative projects that we end up bringing into our work uh, are inspired, really, by things that the community have done. Astro Pi is a, a fabulous example, though, where, you know, we were lucky to work with Tim Peake, uh, the British Ether astronaut, to get Raspberry Pis onto the International Space Station. And now I think we've had uh, uh, tens of thousands of young people have written experiments that run in space. And, you know, one of the things we try to do is bring real world context to learning. So we try to uh, help kids understand why they should learn uh, how to create with technology. And what we've seen through projects like AstroPi is kids addressing problems like climate change through their use of technology. One of my favourite projects there was um, a group of young people who took um, photographs of the earth and used uh, machine learning software that they had uh, created to assess the deforestation problems on the earth through photographs from the ISS, which is just, you know, fantastic. 
You're listening to The Business of Cambridge and today I'm talking to Philip Colligan from Raspberry Pi and Rob Percival from Bluetick. Philip, let's talk about the digital divide, which is something I know you acted really quickly on as early as April 2020 and was a major concern to you before this period as well. So what's the problem as you see it and what are you doing to address it? Well, I think the first wave of the pandemic went everyone was forced into emergency homeschooling, essentially, shone a a bright light on the fact that too many young people don't have a computer to learn at home. And, you know, that mattered enormously when all learning was happening at home, but it matters all the time. Having a computer, having an internet connected device that you can use for learning is transformational for young people. And so that was the problem that suddenly everybody was paying attention to. And lots of organisations made a contribution there. And the government, of course, had their programme and lots of charities around the UK uh, did fantastic work. We partnered with youth and community organisations who worked with the most vulnerable young people who weren't, for whatever reason, eligible for the government scheme. And we've been able to get computers into their uh, hands and into their homes um, to help them stay connected to school and learn throughout this incredibly uh, challenging period. And it's been hugely rewarding for me and all the team to hear the feedback from those families. Um, uh, but I think I think for me, the main point is this is not a problem which only exists during a pandemic. This is a problem that exists all the time and the cost of solving it is trivial compared to the cost of leaving it unaddressed. Rob, another opportunity to even things up is around the way in which boys and girls learn maths. Does Bluetick offer a different learning environment to the more traditional classroom setup? Absolutely, yes. It's it's a really interesting development watching boys and girls use use Bluetick and, and online software in general. I taught in boys' schools, girls' schools, and mixed schools during my teaching career. So I've I've seen um, boys and girls respond to maths in very different ways. And of course, uh, it's easy to make generalities, and lots of boys are different, uh, and lots of girls are different. But in general, I found that particularly when you're teaching in a mixed class, the boys tend to be more boisterous and will generally put up their hands more, ask questions more. And girls will often, not always, but often sit back. And as a teacher, you then have to seek them out a little more um, to find out how they're doing and to give them some help and support. And the, the great thing about using online software is that that takes away a lot of that fear that the student might have of, of having to reach out to the teacher for help. So the AI bot in the corner of Bluetick uh, responds instantly to every student. And so they're all getting that same level of feedback and they can all interact with that bot in exactly the same way. So what we found is that girls in particular are more willing to make mistakes using Bluetick, are more willing to try out things that they wouldn't be 100% sure that are going to be correct because they know that the AI teacher is going to give them some feedback um, but also that they're not going to have to put their hand up and ask for, for help because that's provided for them. So I, I think it's one of the ways that um, technology and AI in particular can really even things up between the genders by giving equal access to the same level of, of feedback to every student. And what other options are out there for basic skills around reading and writing? 
Oh, there, there is one um, that we've discovered. I have no affiliation to this app whatsoever. I just love it. Um, my six-year-old uh, has discovered reading eggs. And with, with anyone uh, with a, a student or a child around that age who's learning to read, I'd, I'd really recommend it. It's, it's, it's very gamified. It's, it's all quizzes and games and it's got lots of fun characters and that sort of thing. Um, we knew it was going well when my 10-year-old came downstairs and said, oh, why couldn't I have had this when I was learning to read? I had to spend all that time reading to you, um, which I think, sadly, in our house, wasn't a particularly cheerful experience on either side. So again, I think it's another way. I, I don't relish the idea of, of my six-year-old spending all day um, looking at a screen, and we spend a lot of time outside running around, and I think that's hugely important. But there are a lot of ways in which learning on, online in that very personal individualized space can actually be better than sitting <laughs> sitting with your dad trying to um, work out what uh, H-A-P-P-Y spells and not get it wrong. And one thing I find interesting with the onward march of technology in education is the role for teachers. Is there always going to be a role for them in the future? Well, I think the single thing that makes the biggest difference um, to a young person's learning outcomes in any subject is access to an engaging, qualified, energetic and skillful teacher. Uh, and a lot of our work is focused on supporting teachers in their professional development all the way through their careers and helping them adopt and learn the best evidence-based approaches to teaching computing and digital skills. So, you know, teachers aren't going anywhere. They're hugely important. Um, they really are essential. I think, though, technology and uh, online tools and the kind of technologies that Rob's been talking about, and we, we have a couple of platforms ourselves which focus on computing education can be fantastic tools for teachers and that can range all the way from helping them uh, save time you know one of the platforms we run called Isaac Computer Science we, we run in partnership with the University of Cambridge and that's focused particularly on students studying computer science qualifications A-levels particularly that saves teachers on average three hours a week and it particularly saves that time because they're setting questions and receiving feedback on where students have misconceptions or where they haven't quite got to grips with a concept yet. And that's saving teachers administrative time. It's also, as we've seen, the ability, and again, this echoes what Rob was saying, uh, the ability to allow students to interact with content at their own pace which I think is incredibly valuable. So yeah, I think I think we have to see technology as an aid and support to the role of the professional teacher. And for sure, it will lead to changes in what teachers do. But hopefully, it will enable teachers to do more of the really value added things, including providing feedback and support for students who are struggling with any particular concept or, or part of the subject that they're learning. I completely agree. And as, as you can imagine at Bluetick, that's a question that we get asked quite a lot. Given that we are proponents of, of AI teachers, um, one of the first questions we often get when we talk to a, a teacher about using Bluetick is, well, where does this leave me? And I absolutely agree. We believe wholeheartedly that the, the teacher is critical. At the same time, we think that there are a lot of things that teachers do that computers can do as well, possibly even better in some cases, thus freeing teachers up to spend more time doing the the great things that that human teachers are are very very good at and that computers are very bad at so for example giving instant feedback when students enter a line of working that's impossible for a teacher to do with a class of 30 students in front of them but it is possible for a computer to do at the same time giving much more 
supportive and helpful feedback whilst looking at every line of working that a student has entered on a problem and looking at their mistakes as a totality and then giving them feedback on, on how they can improve on that is something that computers find very hard and teachers are very, very good at. So what we want to do at Bluetick is take away a lot of those smaller tasks that computers can do well, thus freeing teachers up to spend a lot more time, say, doing investigations, supporting students, encouraging students, doing all those things that, that human teachers are, are very, very good at. Thank you so much, Rob Percival from Blue Tick and Philip Colligan, Chief Executive of the Raspberry Pi Foundation. listening to the Business of Cambridge, brought to you by Third Light. Now, a challenge that so many businesses face is how to get the right message out there to the right people using the right channels. Rajan Mystery from strategic brand design agency R&B has some pointers. I think um, obviously at this point, you know, people have had to really pivot and move from what they are traditionally used to in their traditional comms and approaches to then learning about and trying new things and having to do it very quickly. And I think in some cases, that's probably been a quite a good thing because, you know, as business owners, you know, doing your own messaging, doing your own communication can take a little while. But when you do it for somebody else, you end up doing it quite quickly. So having some sort of parameters and, and those kind of deadlines around the situation we've been in recently, it's probably been a good thing that's actually accelerated people having to move into kind of a trial and error approach as opposed to a very long-winded perhaps strategic approach that you might normally take so it's been quite exciting I think you know probably brands have really I guess surprised themselves in terms of what they've been doing and what they've had to do whether that's kind of moving their business online that kind of thing people have thought about changing and pivoting and especially you know again like the hospitality section a sector for example having, having to go online very quickly but i think the key thing with anything when it comes to you know getting your message out there is still having a very strong view of what your business stands for so having those components around what your messages might be what your value proposition is what your kind of core pillars are once you have those really it's about what the message is so who are you talking to you know what is the objective of that message and so you know being a copywriting agency yourself you'll know that you know creating engaging well-written content with the right tone of voice and a call to action is really paramount yeah and and i'm seeing this a lot now where businesses have seen this kind of accelerated change like you're saying maybe they've been flirting with the idea of having an e-commerce store to go with their bricks and mortar mm. shop and now all of a sudden they're doing it <laughs> And this has happened. Tell me a bit more about tone of voice as well and how people can can get that right if maybe if things have changed in their business lately. Yeah, I mean, tone of voice is an interesting one. I've just been working for something recently for Lenovo. They, they had a kind of partner program and I've been doing something for them recently. And actually, you know, the tone of voice, it's an interesting one because I think it comes back down to the brand idea. You know, people are used to doing the same things, especially in like, I guess, established sectors, you know, insurance, finance, etc. You know, they're probably used to doing things in the same way. So it's probably a good point to kind of think outside the sector sometimes, you know, borrow ideas from other areas, see what they're doing and bring some of that into your communications and change it up a little bit. And I think kind of voice is what, what plays into that really. Um, 
because I think you know audiences are changing, and I think thinking more human to human when when are doing this, especially in B two B businesses and B two B comms, people think that they're talking to an entity, when in fact you're still talking to the one person within that business who could be you know receiving your message, and have their own challenge within that business. So if you can talk to them in the right tone of voice, i.e. you know in a human tone of voice, you're going to get a decent you know kind of action or a reaction from them um, so I think that's really really important and then beyond that I think you know people are thinking about again the traditional approach to, to marketing and messaging but actually you know what's the format you want to be delivering these things in there's lots of play on audio nowadays whether that's on podcasts and then there's the new uh, social media platform called Clubhouse I don't, I'm not sure if anybody here is invited to that I'm not yet but that's a fantastic you know, new thing. I've not really seen too much of it, but it's all about interacting via audio, jumping into conversations. You know, it's worth looking at what kind of formats you want to kind of present your message in and enhance that in some way, whether that's video, SMS, email, which is obviously very traditional, but works really well. So I think just thinking broadly about where, how you can deliver that message is really important. So the question is, how do people decide? Because I see it a lot where people feel very overwhelmed and sometimes they feel a bit left behind, like you just mentioned Clubhouse. And for some people it's like, oh, and now there's another thing I've got to get to grips with. And I think it's very easy for some businesses to lose sight of actually reaching their audience in the areas that the audience are to be found. So what what's your advice there about how people narrow it that down and decide what the best channel is that they can use to get their message out there? That's a, it's a good question. And I think this comes back down to that little bit of research around where your audiences are. Are they moving? Are they changing consumption habits? Just as we know, in the last year, you know, your audience may have been in a certain place, but they're not there anymore or they've had to move themselves. So I think it is a case of probably mapping onto that again and making sure that you know where they are. But also, I'm, I'm quite a big believer in a little bit of kind of experimentation. You know, I think there's probably around dividing your budget up into like, okay, so my audience is on LinkedIn, for example, and on on, on, and on Insta, because I kind of like to dabble between, you know, B2C businesses and B2B businesses. Uh, and I like to talk about design and more kind of, yeah, uh, I guess, geeky things around branding, but also on, a, on the other side, I like to talk about bu- the business of branding. So I think it's about where you, what, what message you have in this, it's a classic case of finding that audience it's a tricky one it is a it is a kind of a bigger piece i guess but I, what i would say is to definitely be open to different things and try different approaches um whether that's doing that yourselves or with a with a kind of agency to help you out i think it's definitely worth trying new things i was just listening to a, uh, something the other day around digital pr and this idea of being more real time with your messages actually understanding what's going on right now what's trending what's happening and can you actually react to that and do something in a more kind of pr fashion perhaps which you may not be used to because you're you know tailoring your messages in a more kind of scheduled manner but can you be freer with the way you approach things so it's not the exact answer you're looking for but what my recommendation would be would be to kind of try something new maybe that's every six months or something like that you're trying something you're just moving uh, the goalposts a little bit and, and, and experimenting. Yeah, so you can always just uh, yeah try a little bit for a bit and then try something else and then as long as you see something working, 
then you can go with it. I think one thing that people really need to do as well is look at the data and see and assess the results. Do you see that sometimes that people, they kind of keep trying, but they don't necessarily assess what's working and what isn't? Yeah, that's probably very true. I think obviously nowadays there's a lot more transparency around attribution of you know your marketing spend especially with the digital channels you know you can kind of record and see where your money is being spent and what you're getting back and in other cases it's maybe still not as transparent so it's about looking at the research as well obviously you know social uh, is, is, is quite a big area businesses are taking up 24 percent of their marketing budget will be on social so that's definitely something to look at and it is it is about the marketing mix at the end of the day so the mix of different channels and different um, different messages and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it comes back down to always having your audience in mind. You know, have your audience in mind. What is the message? What's the aim of the message? How is it going to be best received? And then what kind of, you know, how are you going to deliver that? But it is one of those ones where you've got to kind of pin it to something at least and then experiment as you go along you know i think you should always have a 10 15 budget where you're kind of experimenting moving the needle a little bit more because i think this is what makes you different as a business like if you're communicating in exactly the same way the same kind of business that you are on the same platforms with a very similar message you're going to find it harder to kind of stand out so from a brand perspective that's what we're going back to here in terms of the message I think the message and the medium is just as important. Yeah, so if you don't try, you'll never find out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you so yeah. much, Rajan. Thanks for sharing all your tips today. And that's Rajan Mystery from R&B. Thank you. And that brings Series 2 to a close. We've met some remarkable people over the last 10 weeks and I hope you've learned something to help your business flourish in these difficult times. If you want to catch up with earlier episodes, just head to cambridge105.co.uk and follow the links to Business of Cambridge. And of course, it lives on in a podcast in all the usual places. My thanks to all our guests, to Trevor Dan, who recorded and mixed all the shows remotely, and to our excellent production assistant, Imogen Lang. I'm Sue Keogh and we'll be back soon with Series 3. The Business of Cambridge was brought to you in association with Third Light, solutions for creative people to manage their digital media. The series was a TDC production for Cambridge 105 Radio.